The new pastor had some concerns about the congregation's basic knowledge of the Bible, and so he decided to do some fact-finding. Rather randomly, he decided he would start with Molly's fifth grade Sunday school class. He purposed to go to the classroom before class started, and as the children were coming in, to ask a couple of the boys and girls uh, a couple simple questions. One boy came into the class before it started, and he approached him asking him this question. Do you know who knocked down the walls of Jericho? A look of panic came across the little boy's face, and immediately he blurted out, I I didn't do it. I didn't do it, honestly. (laughs) Rather surprised, uh, the pastor looked at the teacher who was listening in on this conversation, and she quickly responded to the pastor's look of confusion. If he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. (laughs) Dumbfounded, the pastor left abruptly. Later in that week, at the board meeting, he reported his findings so far to the board. And he said, I went into Molly's class and asked one boy if he knew who knocked down the walls of Jericho. Neither he nor the teacher knew who did it. One of the board members spoke reassuringly, don't worry about it, pastor. We'll rebuild it and charge it to vandalism. All right. The details of Scripture are important. And I labor weekly, verse by verse, to help all of us explain, or understand the, the, the details of Scripture. Now, I've been a believer for decades, and I have read through the Bible many, many times. I am surprised how every time I do this, I learn so many new things. There's so many, so many nuances and subtleties and connections that I, I hadn't seen before, or, or, or verses of Scripture that, though I have read them maybe hundreds of times, yet they are as though brand new. It's fresh. It's as though I've never seen it before. The details are important. But I don't read the Bible to amass in my mind a set of facts or a a new set of, of details regarding this or that. I read the Bible in order to understand that one who is its ultimate author. I read the Bible not because of the words that are there, but because of the source of life that these point to. In our continuing study through the 
the fourth gospel. We have been reading in John chapter 5, and the last two-thirds of this particular chapter, a chapter which we will finish this morning, Lord willing, um, the the last two-thirds of this chapter are a response by Jesus to the accusations and charges laid at his feet by the religious leaders. And it all started while Jesus was in Jerusalem and he healed a man disabled and diseased for 38 years, the Scripture tells us. And Jesus did it intentionally on the Sabbath day. Well, that was what immediately sent a flag up the pole in the minds of the religious leaders, and they say, ah, you are a Sabbath breaker. And in verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus said, in response, my father is working, meaning his father is working on the Sabbath day, and I myself is, am working, and I'm not going to stop. Oh, this sent another flag up the flagpole. Not only is Jesus a Sabbath breaker, he is claiming equality with God. Now, Jesus didn't break any Sabbath regulation as we find it in Scripture. He broke the, the, the requirements that had been established, codified, um, assumed to be divinely given by the people. Mm, Jesus broke the, the, the laws of the rabbis but he didn't break the fourth commandment. And regarding that other charge of him equating himself uh, as equal with God, um, it's not a a crime worthy of death, that is blasphemy, uh, if it's true. And Jesus was indeed God himself. Verse 18 of chapter 5 kind of, kind of sets the tone for what Jesus is going to respond. He says, um, or John is saying in, as a commentary here, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus, knowing that he couldn't... Um, uh, testify by himself uh, of, his, of his own credentials, um, he, he calls uh, four different witnesses to the stand, if you will. We, we could see Jesus here in the courtroom. And, and these four witnesses testify to the authenticity, uh, authenticity of, of who he is. They say, yes, they verify this, this one, this Jesus, is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed of God. Jesus calls John the Baptist, and he calls his, his works, his miraculous deeds, those signs. And then he calls the Father, and then he calls Scripture, which is what we'll look at this morning. 
When Jesus called uh, John the Baptist, he called him first because the religious leaders had an experience with J.B. They knew him. Uh, They had investigated him, or rather interrogated him. They wanted to know, who are you? And John was very plain, very pointed. I am not the Christ, he says. But he's here to point to the one whose sandals he is not even worthy to untie. On one particular occasion, after John had baptized Jesus, he pointed to our Lord, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, so Jesus uses John the Baptist as a testimony to the truth that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Second word of testimony or the, the, word, the works that Jesus did. Those, those signs signified, signified something, something specific, namely that he was indeed the Christ. Every miraculous deed Jesus did, every single one individually declares he is none other than Messiah. Then there's the witness of the Father, Twice at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration, um, the, the Father verbally declared, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. We weren't able to, uh, just due to lack of time, uh, weren't able to look at the fourth witness, the witness of the Scriptures. And I'd like to take a little bit of time this morning uh, looking at um, verses 39 and follow. But, but, but let me look at or, or read the, the whole of, of this section of Jesus' response to the religious leaders. Let me begin at chapter 5, verse 31, the beginning of the text that we've considered last week. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. That is, it's not uh, valid in a court of law. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he he gives about me is true. He's speaking of the Father here, but he's going to reserve his comments about the Father uh, for just a, a, a few moments. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony that I received is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the word which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. He has neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he has sent. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. 
I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So we look at verses 39 to 47. We find that the religious leaders were looking for the wrong things. And they were looking with wrong motivations, resulting in a very bad, very undesired consequence. That's our outline. Verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. The details of Scripture are important. God put the words that he put in Scripture, preserved these specific words for a specific purpose. But we can focus on the wrong things as we read the Scriptures. We might call it bibliolatry where the Bible becomes our idol. Think with me if what we have talked about with regard to the charge that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. Jesus did not break the fourth commandment. That commandment that says on the, on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, you shall rest. It was intended to be a, a, a day of ceasing of labor, ceasing um, from the, the normal work of, of the world um, to worship God and to show kindness, to show mercy. That's why Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and he did it many more times than just once, to make a point. Because the religious leaders had focused so intently on the fourth commandment and had amassed this human structure around it called fence laws in order to protect the people from even getting close to the breaking the fourth commandment. The rabbis had, had, had articulated 39 different categories of work forbidding anyone of working in any of these lest they break the fourth commandment. In Matthew chapter um, um, Okay, let me say that let me say that for, for, for a little bit later. Um, 
the, um, the, the, the study of the Scriptures is a good thing. But when, when that study becomes um, uh, skewed, uh, focused incorrectly, uh, there's a problem. I, I want you to listen. I want you to listen carefully to the words of one of the rabbis, uh, one of the greatest rabbis in Jewish history, uh, called Hillel. That was his name. Uh, he he strung together. Um, b- before I read this quote, I have to set it up because the the time the I'm only going to read it once, uh, and and when you when you listen to it, it will it will sound like there are so many things that are all piled together. He he has a string of maxims, disparate maxims that he glues together to point toward the importance that the central priority of mastering the details of Torah, the law. Listen. More flesh, more worms. More wealth, more care. More maidservants, more lewdness. More men servants, more thieving. More women, more witchcraft. More Torah, more life. Listen, he continues. Whoso hath gained the words of Torah, hath gained for himself life in the world to come. In other words, life itself is found in the words of Scripture. By mastering knowledge, you possess eternal life. Back to our text, verse 39. Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They were so obsessed with, the, with a focus on tree bark, if I can use that figuratively, that they didn't even know they were in the middle of a forest. Searching and studying the scriptures is a good thing. But the Jews were focused on the wrong thing as they read Scripture. Suppose you're on the observation tower of a very tall building in a major metropolitan city. Imagine yourself maybe on, uh, on, on the observation deck of the Empire State Building overlooking New York City. And you see buildings and you see ships, and you see planes. So many people, so much activity going on below your feet. And then all of a sudden, you're joined by a man who stands next to you. And he says with excitement in his voice, isn't this a wonderful window? Look at how beautifully it is framed in steel. 
And the tint on these, this window is just superb. And he continues, he says, he gets out his pocket knife and begins scraping some of the glass in the corner of the window. And he says, I am going to do an analysis. I'm going to take this back to my lab. And, and I'm going to, to analyze the, 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 the glass that, that, that is, is right here, but in front of us. And if you give me your email address, I will send you the results of this analysis. Now, as this man is going on and on, you raise your eyebrow and you take a step back, wondering, what is with this guy? He is so focused on the glass that he's missing what is being seen below. It's exactly how the Jews were exposed. Were, were, were obsessed with the minutia of the Scriptures, thinking that in those pieces of minutia they would have eternal life. And the more that they could amass that knowledge and pack it in their mind, the more certain they would be of their salvation. They missed the point. The purpose of the scriptures is to allow us to look out and see him who is the object of our worship. G. Campbell Morgan commented on this text. There is no life in the scriptures themselves. But if we will follow where they lead, they will bring us to him. And so we find life, not in the scriptures, but in him through them. Think about, with me, think about Torah, the words of Moses. The words of Moses point to Christ. The words of Torah are like a window so that we can see out and we can see the living Lord. Let me highlight just, just four big topics that we find in Torah. Covenants, tabernacle, law, historical events, sacrifices. They all point to Christ. The covenants that we find in the Pentateuch, for example, the promises of God to redeem mankind all point to Messiah Jesus. The tabernacle, where the, uh, the, the people of God were to meet God, where God was to, to have his dwelling place, in air quotes. That place was, was uh, prescribed in detail to Moses because it was to be a, 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 a piece of glass through which we see Christ. 
In the tabernacle, we find Christ depicted as the one who gives us access to the Father. The law itself. It um, might be summarized in the Ten Commandments, but, but the law of God displays the character of God. And no more perfect place do we find the character of God lived out than in Jesus. Torah points us to Jesus. The historical events, and there are lots of different kinds of historical events through, uh, through the, um, uh, in, in, uh, in the first five books of the Bible, in, uh, in the Pentateuch. And each of those events is a display of the power and the priorities of our sovereign God all leading us to Messiah Jesus. Sacrifices. Oh, there are many. The book of Leviticus is a bloody, bloody book. But all of that is to display God's holiness and the requirement to, 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 uh, to, to sacrifice in order that sins may be forgiven. Forgiveness doesn't come through the blood of bulls and goats. Forgiveness comes through the blood of Christ. So on every page that Moses wrote, he was writing in anticipation of one who would come who would be greater than he. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses writes, The Lord our God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own countrymen. You shall listen to him. Moses anticipated that there would be one greater than he, none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Now, the, the Jews were at fault because they looked at the Bible as a means for um, their own righteousness. It was uh, the means of recording a list of rules such that if they followed the rules, they would earn eternal life. Of course, they're... Their, their view of, 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 of Scripture and what God had preserved for us was, was inaccurate. In the book of Romans, chapter 10, the, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, begins, actually this is verse 2, I testify about them, the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. The, the Old Testament is given to us not, not as a list of, of, of rules that we, we, we are to follow in order that we... Uh, establish our own righteousness 
No, those, those rules point to, to God's standard of holiness, which none of us can attain to. And, and, and we are broken before God's law because we cannot do it. It of intention and necessity drives us to the foot of, cross, uh, foot of the cross where we find Jesus perfectly fulfilling every point of the law, and he stands as our substitute. You see, the, all of the Old Testament is, is designed to point us to Christ. The renowned German theologian Rudolf Bultmann said this, the Jews searching in the scriptures made them deaf to Jesus' word. Because they were focused on the wrong thing. Second page of your notes. In our text, verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. With an omniscient eye, an omniscient mind, knowing all things, seeing all things, Jesus looks into the hearts of these religious leaders that come accusing him, and he turns the tables and says, wait a minute, you have no love of God. You don't really love God. If you love God, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says in a number of different places. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 15, uh, Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah. And he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The Jews came with their fanatical myopic view of Scripture. And they came with, with their own rules, their own set of, 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 of laws, of, 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 of rules. And, and they said, this, this is how we please God. You, 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 you follow our rule book and you will have eternal life. God says, you, you have, have not only misunderstood and misread Scripture, you don't even have a love for God because they don't keep the commandments of Christ. Instead, they're interested in receiving glory from men. That was their wrong motivation. They weren't interested in God's glory. They were interested in the glory of men. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be honored by their peers. R.C. Sproul was once asked the question, 
How can you get a person who is famous and busy to make time in his schedule to come and speak at an event? I wonder if that was a around-the-bush kind of question to get him to come to their event. Well, this is, what he, this is how he responded. Give that person an honor. Promise him an honorary degree or uh, a big monument or a plaque and invite him to come to the presentation because we all like to be honored. We all like public recognition. We all want to have the praise of our peers. Jesus had no concern for that. His sole purpose and focus was to bring glory to his Father. He didn't care about the honor that other men might give. Verse 43 in our text. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can, you, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Look again at verse 43. When Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, he's speaking as, uh, as an ambassador, as an emissary, as a representative. He came bearing the name of, of the Father, when an ambassador goes into a foreign country, he comes with a, a letter, a, a letter of greeting, a letter of introduction, introducing him on behalf of, of the, uh, the country that he is representing. And here, Jesus is coming as the emissary, the ambassador from the Father, if you will, um, in the Father's name, that is, w- with the Father's um, Uh, word of greeting and of introduction. But they did not receive Jesus. They received others. Um, Others that came in their own name. One commentator I read this week said that there uh, there, there have been 64 um, different individuals who claimed to be Messiah. Well, that was back in his day. Um, he's long dead gone, and I'm, I'm sure that the, the, the list is, is longer still today. But the Jews were, were, were quick to receive these other individuals who came purely on their own credentials. That is, because they said they were Messiah, because they had written their own letter of introduction, the Jews were willing to receive them. They were were accepting frauds and hucksters into their community who claimed to be the Messiah, but the one who was indeed the one and only, they rejected. Exposed their their motivations, their their lack of love for God, their their love for self-glorification. What they should have done is responded as did 
Philip. We looked at this account in John chapter 1 earlier. Philip went to Nathanael after he had been introduced to the Messiah. And he says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's how the Jews should have come to Jesus. But they didn't. Their motivations were wrong. This, this, is, what, um, this is what resulted. This is, this is the consequence. And, and to their shame. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. Now in John chapter 9... Uh, verse 28, uh, the Jews say, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. Well, God did speak to Moses. And it's good that they were disciples of Moses to the point that the one Moses said is coming, just like J.B. was focused on pointing others to Christ, so was Moses. And it was okay for them to be disciples of Moses as long as that one who was the one coming after Moses was the one who was their ultimate focus and intent. Don't focus on the glass. Look at the one on the other side of the glass. Look at Jesus. Moses was the one in whom they have set their hope. If you believed Moses, Jesus continues in verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me on every page Moses wrote. He was pointing to Messiah. But they didn't see it. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Nowhere did Moses write without writing about the Messiah. Well, here we are at the end of chapter 5. Jesus has spent two-thirds of this particular chapter um, responding to the charges, the um, uh, accusations laid at his feet by the religious leaders. You're a lawbreaker. You're a um, Sabbath breaker, specifically. Uh, You are a blasphemer. Jesus uh, points out his relationship to the Father. He does nothing, says nothing, except that which the Father does and that which the Father says. And Jesus calls... um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Baptist and his works and the Father and the Scriptures to their attention. And in all of this, you might think that Jesus was on trial. Even the title of my message in the last two weeks, Jesus in the courtroom, might lead you to believe that Jesus is on trial. 
You might be surprised when I say to you that Jesus here is not on trial. Someone else is. story is told of a, of a man who was visiting a friend in Paris, France. And his host thought about and anticipated his friend coming. And when he came, he wanted to show the, him the high places, the, the, the high points, if you will, of uh, French culture that are there in Paris. And so he took him to the Louvre. And they spent hours there looking at painting after painting, the glory and the wonder of all that is there in that museum. In the evening, they went to a, a, a concert hall and listened to a masterful concert. At the end of the day, the host asked his guest, what do you think? And the guest thought about it for a moment, and he said, you know, honestly, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm, I'm not too impressed. His host replied this way. If it's any consolation to you, the museum and its art were not on trial. And neither was the symphony. You were on trial. History has already judged the greatness of those works of art and the greatness of that music. All that is revealed by your attitude is the smallness of your appreciation. Till God in human flesh I see my thoughts no comfort find. The holy, just, and sacred three are terror to my mind. But if Emmanuel's face appears, my hope, my joy begins. His grace removes my slavish fears. His blood removes my sins. Born of a virgin. Lived a sinless life. Willingly, purposefully, voluntarily offered himself as a sacrifice. He died unjustly And then he raised himself back to life. My friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is fully man as he was thought to be in that first century. But he demonstrated himself over and over and over again with everything that he said in everything that he did. He demonstrated himself to also be fully God. You see, Jesus wasn't on trial. You are. 
What will you do with Jesus? Will you submit to him as the one and only God? Will you bow your heart, confessing all of that which you have done to offend him in thought, in word, in deed, motivation, your heart, your will, your mind, your body. In all of these things, God expects that we will display his holiness. When we realize that we have not, and we humbly bow before him, believing on his name, he forgives sinners and welcomes us into his heaven. What will you do with Jesus? Our blessed God, how thankful I am to have had the scriptures open to me that I might see the Lord Jesus through the lens of Scripture. That I might see my desperate need for the risen Christ. Humble our hearts, dear Father. Cause us to see that earnest need that we each have. And I pray that you would find, even in this room, hearts that are not only broken, but are full of joy, finding release, forgiveness, a new birth in Christ. We pray this in the name of the Savior.